Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the PE podcast. Today, we have an incredible guest. I say that because she is superwoman. She does everything. She's also a dear friend and a mentor of mine. She has seen me through insanity and a million different projects and has supported me on every little thing that I do. We have Miss Dr. Stacy Walton. She is a pediatrician. She is the founder of The Diversity Doctor, which is a consultancy. She leads and equips other medical leaders to help them work through issues of diversity and inclusion in the healthcare space. She also runs racial healing circles in Sacramento. She does a million other things that I won't, we don't have time to list because she does so many things. Dr. Stacy Walton, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm just honored to be on your podcast and just so excited to have this conversation with you today. And uh, for anyone listening, this is not Stacy and I's first time chatting. We've been friends. You've been my mentor for several years now. You are a PE board member for those listening and have checked out our website. So this interview is not going to feel very formal because I feel like I'm talking to a friend and a mentor. And for once, you won't be talking me off a ledge. You will be educating others. And so very excited to hear what you have to say. Do you want to tell everyone what you're up to these days? Wow. <laughs> well, so many exciting things are happening. I'm in the middle of writing a book for uh, young health care professionals supporting their uh, anti-racism journey, like specifically yep. looking at, you know, from a, not just a personal level, but from a structural and systemic level, how as a healthcare provider, I can get involved in this uh, work and this action. Yep. Um, you know, I'm still seeing patients. I'm a board certified pediatrician. I, um, I'm consulting other companies in their uh, diversity inclusion work, uh, work and journeys. I, I have an exciting new program that's going to be coming out in early next year, specifically tar targeting uh, pre-health students at the college level. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that. Yes. What and, doesn't she do? <laughs> and something I'm very proud of is I'm involved in multiple racial healing circles around Sacramento, um, in the community, at Sac State, um, and uh, just really exciting work. And we'll get more into the, the racial healing circles because I know people listening are going to want to hear more about that and how they can get involved, especially if they're in the Sacramento area. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I want to jump into one of the questions that a lot of our listeners wanted to know, which is we're here to talk about systemic racism in the healthcare system. And I want to start with your perspective of how does racism impact the physician or healthcare provider of color? You know, I think there's there's something about the institution of medicine and healthcare that's you know historically been put kind of on a pedestal. Yeah. You know, there's something special about doctors, unique about human beings who choose um, that professional career. But the reality is, we're human too. <laughs> So even though in the last 20 years, there's been a spotlight in corporate America around how racism shows up, or there's been a spotlight in the mental health um, system or the criminal justice system, how race, race, <clears throat> excuse me, how race and racism sort of play out. Right. Well, in healthcare, it happens too. Like physicians, other healthcare providers, 
um, are human and we uh, are also part of this larger global society. And we're dealing with uh, race and racism. And of course it has a specific way it looks in, in healthcare that may be different in corporate America or in the criminal justice system. Right. The way that it shows up is in the data. Mm. The data is very, very clear when you're looking at race. If you are not white, your health outcome um, is less than. So um, the perfect example is what happened with our pandemic, with COVID-19, which is not over, by the way. I'm going to get that plug yes. in. <laughs> we lost 40,000 people this summer to COVID. But when you look at who died, you know, COVID-19 is a virus. It, it didn't discriminate according to right. what race you were. If you were human, you were at risk of dying. But what created this um, drastic difference in the um, proportion of people dying within different communities was related to um, not the race of individuals, but racism, the hierarchy of whether or not you would have access to services. And even if you had access to services, the quality of those services that you would have access to. Um, many people, um, when you look at who disproportionately died from COVID-19, you have to look at our indigenous populations across the United States. The highest rate, the highest proportion of death we're on Indian reservations. Why do you think that is? What what is the is the reason the access access to healthcare? Access to healthcare, access to um, supplies. You know, mm -hmm. early on in the pandemic, yep. it was all about could you protect yourself from the virus because we had we didn't have right, uh, right. vaccines as a way to protect yourself, and then later it becomes access to the vaccines. Yep. Right, so distributing. Um, distributing the vaccine, who gets access, who gets it first, you know, which systems are, are integrated and in place to make sure the distribution of the vaccine was equal and fair. Right. Um, and then you have to take into consideration, um, well, it's more than access. It's also trust. So one of the things that we tend to forget that the healthcare system relies on trust. For me to help you, you have to trust me. Right. I'm gonna make treatment, I'm gonna make a diagnosis, I'm gonna make treatment recommendations. You have to trust what I'm, um, you have to trust me to share information with me. You have to trust my recommendations. And so when COVID-19 in particular, and I can speak specifically about the African-American community because there's so much distrust, 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 Dis distrust. Um, the, the, the sort of a on the street, the kind of conversations were happening, right. were going completely against the science of COVID-19. You know, this is a problem for white people. Black people won't get COVID-19. Um, this is, um, you know, the conspiracy series. This is just another um, revisit, a revisit of COINTELPRO. They're just trying to um, in, in, in infest our neighborhoods with a virus to, to kill us. So there were multiple, there's the 
the distrust came in many ways. One, not getting, not going to the hospital. Two, going to the hospital, but encountering something that um, it's not talked enough about in healthcare. And that is many African-Americans in particular, I can really speak to this group because I've heard from them and I um, read the research on this, have really uh, have extremely distressing interactions in the healthcare system. Mm, that's what I want to talk about next is yeah, the systemic racism in healthcare because it goes yeah, overlooked. You, yep. you go, I mean, the, the research is there. You go, no one is listening to you. Um, your complaints are being discounted. Um, and, and that shows up in so many different ways. You know, we have the, the, the maternal mortality of Black women going into the U.S. healthcare system to deliver a baby is outrageous. Yeah. And many of those deaths are connected to uh, nurses and physicians not listening to that woman's concerns. The most famous example of, you know, uh, of that is Serena Williams. Mm. When she went in to deliver her baby, she kept saying to the healthcare providers, there is something wrong. I have a blood clotting disorder that manifested in the past. And I'm experiencing some of these system, symptoms right now as I'm going through labor and delivering my baby. Oh and my she gosh. kept being poo-pooed. Don't worry about it. It's not the same. That's not what's going on. And the reality is finally someone listened and it actually, it was what was going on. So Serena Williams de delivered, you know, a high risk was in, in that moment, delivered a high risk um, critical um, situation. And luckily they started to listen to her, but she had to, can you imagine you're, you're in labor, you're about to have a baby, your life is about to change, uh, you're in pain. <laughs> and no one will listen or believe you. And no you. one's listening. And you're Serena Williams, right? Of you're all people. Famous, right, you're this famous all-star. Someone you would think that, you know, people would really be listening. Right, right. But, um, and that happens every day. That not listening to Black women when they have health concerns is, um, is entrenched. Yeah. in the healthcare system. And the research um, reveals it over and over and over again. One aspect of that phenomenon is bias. This idea that we have um, biases, some of them that we're very conscious of, right? right. You find yourself with a stereotype, uh, the assumption, you know, for instance, you meet someone you know, that happens, uh, you meet a man who happens to be seven and a half feet tall. And then the assumption is the stereotype is, uh, are you on a professional basketball? Say, yeah, you, you do you play basketball? <laughs> yeah. Do you play basketball? Right. And you know, he says, uh, no, I'm a professor of literature. Uh, right, know? right. And, and you're, you find yourself going, oh my gosh, I you know, how embarrassing did I right. really assume that? And so the same thing, so that's an explicit bias. That's a bias where I'm walking around thinking tall men are basketball players. Right. But we also have this phenomenon in our brain called implicit bias, where we have, uh, because, of, um, because of the ego, because of 
um, our need for survival, our brain has developed this system to manage data and sensory input very, very quickly, so quickly that we are not conscious of those processes. Mm. So oftentimes there's data coming in that reinforce biases and stereotypes that we're not even aware of. And so one of the things that happens in the healthcare field, and I've had colleagues, you know, we've had conversations about this, like, I don't believe this, this study, the study couldn't possibly be true. I've just spent, you know, 10, 15 years of my life getting a great education to provide the best quality of care um, equitably. Right. And telling me that I'm making decisions from hidden beliefs. And unfortunately, the re- it's true, you are. I, there's a study that came out in Florida and I actually sat uh, across from one of my white pediatricians and we cried together, right? Wow. There's a study out of Florida that said um, Florida physicians who were taking care of critically ill black infants were three times more likely to die if their physician was white. They'll try oh to wrap gosh. their mind around that. The infants you know? were three times more likely to die. The black infants were three times more likely to die if their physician was white. Yes. Wow. So just wrap your mind around that. So I'm sitting with you know, a white colleague that I adore and we're crying together, crying for different reasons. Sure. She's crying because she's being self-reflective around am I making those kinds of mistakes? I would be devastated to to have that revealed to me. I'm crying because we need more black physicians in Florida. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so it has been long, uh, for 20 years, we've had the research specifically on doctors revealing that yes, we do have implicit bias. There's a very famous study from 1999, I believe, um, some physicians uh, from the Northeast did a study and found that uh, a group of physicians across different races had absolutely no problem diagnosing uh, heart disease in a group of a group of patients that only differed by race and gender, and there was they had no problem with the diagnosis, but when it came to treatment recommendations if you were white and male compared to being black and female, the recommendations were like night and day. Really? Oh yes, really. So the and men got a different treatment or totally recommended different treatment. Why is that? Or what was the treatment? So the, the, the white male treatment was an invade more and a more invasive, uh, uh, hmm investigation, you know, okay. cardiac catheterization. Sure. And the, the treatment uh, choice for the women was more of a, let's wait and see. Okay. Um, your symptoms aren't as bad as we, as you think. So let's just wait and see. So why and- do you think that is? Does that have anything to do with insurance? And, and, and I'm just thinking ahead. I'm like, what, what could the reason be? I mean, what that, that kind of implicit yeah, that bias. Time- you know, at 20, 20 years ago, those were the questions, right? Is this about insurance? Is this about right. access to care? Is this about, um, 
did black and white physicians make, uh, was there any difference in, in the race of the physician making these decisions? There, right. there were a lot of questions that came out of that study. You know, right. After the last 20 years, we found that all of these things are part of it, right? Because right. when you talk about racism, we have to look at it at three levels. We have to look at what is happening at the personal level. We have to look at it, what's happening structurally, like what's happening in the hospital, right? What's right. happening in the clinic. But we also have to look at it at a systemic level. You know, how does access interrelate with uh, the region of the country you're in? How does that interrelate to whether um, the services are in the city or, or in the rural areas where there's very little access? How does that interrelate um, to the training of right. the healthcare provider? So all of these structural issues come together and create this systemic web that create, you know, exponentially makes the, the issues bigger. Right. So when we unpack the why, we, it's, not just, it's not just looking at access. It's not just looking at social determinants of health, which I wanna, I would love to talk about. Yes, please. Not looking at, you know, it's not just looking at the individual provider. It's all of those in combination to help explain why uh, in, you know, certain diseases are worse in certain populations, why people are dying at greater, uh, uh, greater rates um, because of, you know, and the difference is, is the color of your skin or is the race that you've been. Right. Assigned. I want to ask you really quickly. I want to talk about this concept of implicit bias, because mm -hmm. a lot of times I hear when I'm talking with um, some people, yeah, it's just, and sometimes I will talk to someone about this concept, this real thing that we all have implicit bias. And the immediate response is, oh, well, I don't, I don't have that, or I'm not racist. That can't be me. Can you talk a little bit about how and what implicit bias really is and, and what it means? Because I, I feel like in my experience, when I've brought it up, when I've discussed it, you know, when I've done trainings on implicit bias for companies, there is this, this initial uh, wave of defense that comes up mm -hmm. and it's almost like, you know, we have, I, I heard another leader say at one time where they said, you know, any other thing, you know, we all admit that in, you know, in America, we might say like, oh, we've all overeaten before, or, oh, we've all, we've all not gotten enough sleep before. Of course, we all have implicit bias. It's something that is ingrained in us that we have to actively correct. Why is it so hard for us to admit it? And why do we get offended by it? Whereas if I'm not getting enough sleep and someone says, hey, Savannah, it looks like you're not getting enough sleep. I wouldn't be defensive. I would be like, oh my God, you're right. I need to go, I need to go sleep. I need to correct that. Why is it that when we talk about implicit bias, is it, what is the tendency to interpret that in a way that involves us becoming defensive? Where is that coming from? I, I believe the defensiveness comes from lack of understanding. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because number one, the reason we all have implicit bias, this hidden bias, well, first of all, it's hidden from us. I don't know what my implicit in this moment right now, right? I don't know which hidden biases that are in the deepest recesses of my psyche yeah. are impacting what I'm thinking and how I'm behaving. I just don't know. Yeah. I have clues. Some of the clues as a, as a pediatrician are, is the data, is right. the public health data that says there are these differences across race. You know, it's the public health data that says, 
when someone um, is overweight or has a high BMI, physicians are more likely to focus on their weight and weight management and be judgment, judgmental about it right. than the actual chief complaint the person comes in with. And because of that, overweight people are dying. So the, the person who is overweight comes in and their chief complaint is, I have the worst headache I've ever had in my life. And the physician immediately starts talking about the fact that they weigh 300 pounds. Got well, it. If you, if you managed your weight, if you were exercising, if you were eating the right things, if you were managing your diabetes, you wouldn't be susceptible to headaches. When the reality is that person was describing the initial um, stages of a stroke. Mm. And so it's so missed. It's missed. And so what would that be about? One of the things that one of the things that we know about implicit bias is the way that our brains work. Sensory data is coming in, you know, um, uh, at unbelievable rates. Millions of bits of data have come in through all of my sensory um, uh, channels yeah. in the last second from sight, sound, hearing, touch, feel, you know, right. this is in the background. And so my brain, you know, the human brain's number one job is to keep you safe, to keep your ego happy and to make sure you survive on the yeah. planet. And so there's some data that's important to pay attention to, but the majority of it, your brain is saying, Stacy, does it need to to be bothered with the noise of the fan that's rolling up, you know, on the ceiling, or the fact that the dog is barking, or that there's someone yelling outside her right. window, right? Or that it's too hot in the room. No, her focus is having a conversation with Savannah. And so all that data is still coming in. And so my brain is so such an amazing uh, machine that it's filing all that information away. So think of implicit bias as on a daily basis, I'm taking in all of this data. I'll give a very specific example. A piece of data that people are hearing and seeing all the time that we don't even think about is the data around black men and violence. Mm -hmm. So I turn on the TV, I'm watching the news, I'm hearing reports over and over and over again day to day, week in and week out, year in, year out, about Black men and violence. I'm not even paying attention to it. Intellectually, I may even have counter information about that, right? Mm -hmm. That statistically, it's kind of equal across the board, right? Right, right. And, but subconsciously, because I'm watching the news or on social media, whatever the way that this information is coming in, it's seeping into my psyche. It's getting filed away by my unconscious part of my yeah. work. And so it's still there. And so I find myself um, walking down the street. There's a group of black men and, and I immediately feel fear. Well, where's that coming from? Right? Right. So that implicit bias, it's not, um, I encourage people not to see it as so much of a judgment, but to see it as, this is how our brains are wired to keep us safe. And 
it behooves us to be responsible about it. If I'm in healthcare and I know that people who are, whose BMIs are high or who are considered overweight are dying in excess because of stroke, misdiagnosed strokes, it behooves me to ask myself, am I complicit in that? Mm. Have I missed a diagnosis of any of my patients who are overweight? Have I created an environment that my team, 50 pounds overweight, who's experienced judgment every time they've come to the clinic, have I created an environment where that teen is not even going to say what's going on for them to even get the information that I need to do a good right, job? Right, right. Has that environment been so um, uh, unpleasant for that patient that they're just going through the motions? I've, it's so interesting now um, compared to 10 years ago. Now I will have, a, um, you know, the uh, medical assistant getting the chief complaint. And part of the chief complaint on, in my patients will be here for uh, a well child visit. Patient does not want to discuss weight. Got it. And that basically is their way of advocating for themselves. Right. I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. That's not what I'm, I'm here for. Anything else. Right. We're not talking about my weight. And part of that, I, I'm, Part of why I think that has become an issue in the healthcare system is because weight and BMI is drilled into medical students right. um, from day one. It's like a focus. And so it's, it's not surprising that it remains a focus when you go out into um, practice. So just to kind of sum up a little bit of what we've talked about, this idea of implicit bias is not something that when we hear it, we should feel shame so much as accountability. I think that's really what I'm hearing you say is recognizing that I, Savannah, have implicit bias. My reaction doesn't need to be, I'm so ashamed. There might, you might feel guilt or you might feel a little bit of worry, but shame isn't necessarily the word you're using. It's accountability. Okay. Now I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it. There are things in my brain that I don't know about yet. There are indicators and filters that I might be unfairly putting on people. I don't know what those filters are yet, but let me just be aware of them and be held accountable for any negative impact they may, might have on someone. And I think that's a big shift because when we hear implicit bias, when I talk about it with people, when, I, when I've heard it mentioned uh, in trainings, that there is this idea of when you're mentioning implicit bias, you are putting shame on someone and then they cr create a defense to say, I don't want that. I reject that. I am not racist. And that's not what that <laughs> word is saying at all. Right. And, 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 and that's why it's so important in these conversations that we're calling people into the conversation and right. calling people out. You know, implicit bias training is a billion dollar industry in the United States. And, the, and one very clear um, uh, outcome from that training that we can say is people come out of that training with a heightened ability to identify bias in their coworkers. Yep. <laughs> You're biased, you were biased, you, you know. Yep. And, and the, for me, what, how the, the industry has failed everyone is not spending the, the time to equip people 
with right. the, the awareness and the skills to be more self-reflective. Like what are, what are like, just like you're saying, what are my biases and how should I be accountable for them? And there are tools out there to help you. And just like you were saying, one tool is when something's brought to your attention. Instead of immediately going to a defensive mode, right. having the ability to stay open at the top, to continue the conversation, to see how to be accountable, to see how to make things different. It's almost like a gift, really. Right. When someone brings something to your attention that you're completely unaware of. Right. What a gift, because think of all, (laughs) think of all the incidents they've saved you from. Right. Dr. Walton, every time I come in, you you just focus on, on my weight. I'm more than my weight. Ah, instead of going straight to, oh, but you know, your weight, it's going to affect your heart and it's going to affect your longevity and you know, it's like, ah, no, I stop. I pause, I breathe. Cause you know, I can feel you know, anytime someone calls you out, you just mm-hmm. feel your heart rate going up, your breathing gets faster. You, you see red. That, right? <laughs> you start to see red. Yeah. But, you know, switching in, in healthcare, we talk about switching out of that fight, flight, and freeze. There are, there are tools to help you literally in the moment switch out of that defensive posture into one where you're open at the top, where you're calming the body down. Right. And you're saying to yourself, ah, let me breathe through this. Give me a moment. Let me breathe through this. Okay. I'm ready to listen. And those are skills that we all, you know, all should be practicing. And they can really, yeah. And they can really help keep the conversation going. Thank you so much for your fount of wisdom. As always, (laughs) there is no, ladies and gentlemen, there is actually no question that Stacey doesn't know the answer to. So if you have questions about literally anything, I'm pretty sure she has the answer. (laughs) Thank you so much for all of the, the nuggets of advice and the anecdotes. I think our discussion today, what I've learned from you is really that saying systemic racism, throwing that word around is, is something that we see a lot, like what, but, but actually looking at it and saying, what is it? Where is it in the healthcare system? Where is it in implicit bias and longevity and distrust in our systems and in, in the treatment of black and brown people in the healthcare industry, looking at access, all of these very specific anecdotes is how I learn. And I'm sure it's how other people learn as well. Um, hearing terms and not being able to link them to specific examples is where I a lot of times get lost. And so mm-hmm. I think you've done a really great job of saying this idea of systemic racism looks like this in the healthcare industry, specifically looks like this and going into implicit bias. So I'm so grateful. You, I swear you should be some sort of university teacher, a professor. Would you ever consider being a professor in another life or eventually? Well, actually, Savannah, I have been a professor. No way. Oh, you, that's right. You've done the- I spent, um, my, I spent my first 10 years as a professor in medical schools. I'm kind of upset that I never took on that profession because I would have loved to have had you in class. Were um, you a tough grader? I, I was fair. <laughs> I was fair. That's- that's another way of saying yes, Stacey was a harsh grader. <laughs> That's what that just told me. 
<laughs> maybe I'm glad I never took your class. Um, I love you dearly. Where can people find you to learn more and follow along on what you're doing? You know, I'm the diversity doctor. That's my brand. That's um, whole brand. I have a website called um, uh, thediversitydoc.com. And most of my programs are on the website and uh, my email is there. Feel free to, you know, email me. I, I try to answer emails uh, and answer people's questions. I love to do that. Uh, I've made uh, actually lots of colleagues and uh, co-conspirators that way. So it's been really a wonderful so way fun. to connect to people. Thank you so much. If you want to get involved with her workshop, visit thediversitydoc.com and or you can go to the about section of pleaseelaborate.co and she's there under board of directors and her website is there too. So there's a myriad of places that you can check out Stacy. Stacy, thank you so much. I love you to bits and we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me, Savannah. I, I could talk for forever. <laughs> As could I. I love the sound of my own voice. You know that. <laughs> Thank you so much. We can't wait to hear for, more from you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.